Nigel, thanks for being with us. Uh, based podcast, you are definitely one of the most based people I know. Based meaning uh, it's a good thing. That's not an epithet, I promise you. Uh, thanks for thanks for coming on. It was great to see you last year in Australia as well. And disappointingly, we were meant to be on tour with uh, Don Jr. last week, but uh, you're still in London and I'm I'm sitting here. So uh, that was a bit disappointing. Didn't quite happen. 8,000 people have bought tickets to come to the events um, and it was building a sort of momentum of its own. Um, look, there were you know, visa problems. Don's visa came through, but it was all a bit too late with mega flights from America. But look, let's, let's not be too downbeat about it. Uh, the tour has not been cancelled. It's been postponed. And we're going to find dates either in September or December. Um, and it's going to go ahead. So, Alex, let's not be downhearted. Not at all. No, it's postponed and we're going to be back on hopefully soon. And I'm looking forward to it because I've never been on tour with anyone. So I can't think of two people I'd rather be on <laughs> tour with more than that. So, uh, but I, just quickly, the, the the issue of the thing that's most topical in Australia at the moment is the voice. Now, you've, you've heard about this in the UK. You've, you've heard about what, what this Labor government are trying to do with the most serious uh, changes to our constitution in almost ever. Uh, to bring in this race-based power into the uh, into the Australian Parliament, it's pretty extraordinary stuff. But you're Mr. Brexit. You know, Brexit was your thing. Brexit was the establishment losing to the man on the street, the populist movement. C- can you see the similarities here? I mean, are we, have we, we the polls are not looking good for the yes case. They're looking good for the no case. We can yeah. draw a bit of inspiration. And what, what's your message to uh, to the no campaign like me? You know, when I was brought up. Um, I'm a little bit older than you. Um, you know, we were told that we should treat everybody equally. Judge people not on their race or their class or their accent uh, or their, you know, sexual preference or what. Well, ignore all of that. Completely ignore all of that. Treat everybody as a human being. Trust people until they let you down. And, and, and that was actually a very strong dare I say it, Christian message. Yes, when I grew up, we used to believe in Christianity here. Um, And interestingly, what was Martin Luther King fighting for? I mean, you think about it, possibly the greatest orator of the 20th century. I mean, he almost sang to audiences. And the I Have a Dream speech, his most famous speech, I have a dream that one day my four children will be judged not for the color of their skin, but with the content of their character. And what are we doing with The Voice and other initiatives? What are we doing with this whole idea of rights for individual groups, some groups being preferred over other groups? And and frankly, if you are gonna draw distinctions between people on racial lines and potentially give one group beneficial rights, whatever the history, Whatever was done to the Aborigines, no one, you you can't atone for the past. You can't atone for the racism of the past by instituting constitutionally a modern form of racism. Two wrongs do not make a right. And and it's so classic of sort of middle-class, upper-middle-class liberals to be so filled with guilt that they want to do things that they think are are making amends for history. It is a recipe for division. It is an incredibly bad idea and so i'm pleased to see the polls where they are yeah they really are they're coming in quite well and i I, I share your views on all of that of course and uh, but it is seven years on since brexit and a similar sort of dynamic where you had the corporate sector 
barracking for staying in the uh, the union and you know the the elites barracking for the same thing and you and you you won it you won brexit you know with your you know your oratory and your uh, you know the, the going out and speaking to people and doing the pub tours and talking to the man on the street I mean, that's that's up against it like uh, like it is here. You you think that model works as well? I mean, this is sort of town hall sort of politics, isn't it, this kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, grassroots politics works. It really does. And, you know, you have to do it in conjunction with social media, you know, with all the modern tools at our disposal. It's not easy. I mean, you know, many of these big tech companies have been censoring what people say. Uh, I think Elon Musk taking over Twitter has made quite a difference. I mean, thank goodness for Elon. Mm. So no, grassroots politics. Brexit was a bottom-up grassroots movement. And in the end, I emerged, you know, as the leader of that group. It was never a top-down thing at all. And that's why it was organic. It was solid. It had roots. It was real. The, the entire establishment was against it. The entire establishment. The worst thing is, seven years on, they're still against it. They've never accepted the result of Brexit. They never accepted Trump's victory in 2016. And they've now spent seven years maligning us that somehow we were funded by Russia and a whole host of other conspiracy theories. But if you look across the European continent right now, you know, you will see there is a new realism in politics creeping in. An understanding that the capital cities, that the big corporates, that the well-paid public sector that mo most of the media, that all these people are like fish swimming in the same pool and increasingly becoming disconnected from electorates outside of that zone. It's what we call the marzipan layer. People aren't quite at the top, but they're beautifully tucked in um, and they're all doing very nicely. Thank you very much indeed. And the rest of you can starve and rot and no one cares. And, and, and that's where, that's, that's what populism is all about. It's all about the voice of ordinary folk being ignored and even being traduced. You know, for daring to say some things, uh, you know, you, you're effectively kicked out of the club. So I think Western populism has a lot, lot further to go. But to be honest with you, I think it's barely begun. Yeah, no, I agree. And populism gets that kind of that that kind of stigma attached to it. But really, it is just pure politics, isn't it? Really, that is what yeah. we're talking about. And in fact, I mean, it's interesting because I, I read an article in the Daily Mail today about the this, this sort of the sweeping of populism through Europe. We're seeing it now. You know, we've seen uh, Spain, Italy and other countries, Greece, that have all had swings to the right uh, and predictions of Holland and potentially France and other countries following in suit with this kind of almost this wave through Europe. But what do you put it down to? Is it is it this sort of disastrous open border policy? Is it net zero? Is it just people thumbing their nose at the EU? What What is it? Well, Nothing's working anymore. Nothing works. <laughs> and ordinary people see their lifestyles, their living, their income, their sense of safety, security, their ambitions for their children. I mean, in most Western countries, you know, kids, kids of, of my kids' age can't aspire to the things that I had when I was their age. Unaffordable property prices, um, in, in, certainly in my country, access to public health becoming an increasing problem. Uh, moralizing diktats about what you can and cannot say. Speed cameras being put up on every road just in case you're driving a few kilometers too quickly. I mean, you know, it's as if we're mimicking China in many ways. So the real battle now isn't left v right. The real battle now is do you do you support authoritarian 
Victoria state style control <laughs> during the pandemic? Or do you believe in liberty and freedom? And do you believe that people are innocent until they're proven guilty? And these are the great battle lines that I think have been set for the next decade and more. And if we were to lose, then everything that Western civilization was based on will be trashed. You know, people call it culture wars and all sorts of things. Actually, it's an essential battle for the liberty and the freedom of choice and speech of the individual. Yeah, that's right. And besides, the left started it anyway with the culture wars. We just need to finish it. Oh, yeah. So that's what I always say. So, and, and and actually, just on that topic of the, of the of Europe and how it plays out with this swing to populism, that that is ultimately going to collide with the EU, isn't it? Where you still do have those technocrats and those yeah. social democrats running <laughs> the EU. How's that going to play out if, if we do get this massive swing towards populism and the right? Is it is it going to see other countries, you know, leave the union as well, or how does that play out? Ultimately, yes, because nation states actually want to live under democratic self-control, not to have an unelected bureaucracy with vast amounts of power backed up by their own courts. Uh, you know, I mean, Brexit was an incredible result. I mean, it was the first time since 1945 that we'd reversed this growth of these global institutions. That was what was so remarkable about it. There is no way this globalist structure run by bureaucrats who have the sole right to propose law and the sole right to propose the repeal of law. There is no way long-term it's gonna work. And the cultural differences between the East and the West and the North and the South within the European continent are too great. And anyway, it's undesirable. What's lovely about Europe is you, you go for two hours in a car and you find a different language, different cheese, different wine, <laughs> different, I mean, it's wonderful. The, I mean, mm. they all bang on about diversity the whole time. Well, yeah. real diversity exists within Europe, and yet this centralised, homogenising, harmonising, pasteurising culture wants to get rid of those differences. <laughs> so, vive la difference, as the French would say. And provided that Europe has functioning democracies, it will always live in peace. And on that topic, speaking of the the follies of this and the, the fact that you may have rank, you know, rankled up some uh, some some elites in Europe, particularly in the banking sector, we've seen in the last couple of weeks you've been debanked, uh, debanked wow. a new term. You're, you're banking stateless, or you were for a little while. Take us through that uh, as a very dangerous okay. human being that you are, politically exposed person and so on and so forth. Take us through that. Where's that up to and what happened? There it is. <laughs> 40 pages. I put in a subject access request, a legal requirement to my bank, the one that wants to close me down, to find out why. The report is 40 pages long, it's 17,000 words. And the decision to close me out was taken last November. Once a small mortgage I have with them expired, I was to be expunged, but not for financial reasons. The client is now sufficient to retain on a commercial basis. When considering our stance, specifically on ESG, diversity and inclusion, no. the comments and articles are not in line with our views or our purpose. Our purpose. So the march of the left, of the extreme liberals, the extreme liberals who were in fact very illiberal, through our public and our corporate sector is here for all to see. Just a quick thought on it. Uh, Brexit is mentioned 30 times. Surprise. Russia, never even been to Russia, is mentioned 22 times. The Donald is mentioned 14 times. Racist, nine times. 
literally exposed person five times. And I'm doing this recording with you, Alex, before I'm about to blow this out of the water. Uh, tonight, UK time on GB News, the Daily Telegraph will be an exclusive. And here's my closing point. It isn't just people like me that are at risk from this. And I'll tell you why. The global banking institutions use a couple of big credit agencies. The, the biggest one being a firm called Refinitiv. You know, if I was a bank and I got hold of Refinitiv now, I could find out the credit assessment for Alex Antic. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? All right. Is he worth lending money to or isn't he? Now, to some extent, we understand the banks need to protect themselves. Fine. They now have the technology and the capability for a bank to give the entirety of its list to Refinitiv, who can then word check people's social media posts on Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere. If And I'm standing up and fighting, not just for my rights, but for the rights of thousands who've been debanked and got rid of already, small businesses, people with opinions. And if we don't stop this corporate drift, we call it wokery, but it's PC gone mad. If we don't stop this, we'll finish up living in a China-style social credit system where only those with the correct views can fully participate in society. This is a very, very big battle, and it links back to what I was saying earlier. For the next decade, the battle will be between state authoritarianism and censure against freedom. Nigel, that is an extraordinary development. And so, you know, thank you for uh, sharing with us uh, today. And I know you're a very busy man and you've got lots and lots to do. That is absolutely staggering uh, and a terrifying window into the future of social credit, as you say. There's so much more we could cover off on that. We'd love to come back to it at a later day. I know you're really busy. So, look, thank you so thank much you. for the time and go out there and get them. And uh, we'll speak again soon. And looking forward to seeing you in Australia very, very soon for the recommencement of the tour. I'll be there. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. Good on you. Thanks for that.